And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sweet and glorious promises that we have in Christ. We thank you for this day in which we give special attention to your resurrection. We pray that it would inform our lives, not just on one day of the year, but every day, every hour. We would be walking in step with the reality of a resurrected Lord and a resurrected uh, possibility for all of us. Not, not a possibility, inevitability for us all. We thank you for that. We pray that this, your word, which is alive and active, that it would minister to us, that it would prick our hearts, penetrate them, penetrate our souls and our minds, and that, again, we ask that we would leave uh, transformed, changed. That's what your word does. We ask that you would do that by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're breaking from our, our time in Genesis on this Easter Sunday to consider one of the great passages on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The whole chapter uh, looks at the resurrection, but we've got just some, some portions of it here today that we're going to focus on. Do, do any of you remember Marshall Applewhite? Does that name ring any bells? He began in the 1970s along with Bonnie Nettles, a, uh, a movement uh, in the 1970s. Um, they, they, they kind of drew upon a little bit of Bible, a lot of New Age, a lot of sci-fi thrown in, they kind of whipped up this movement. And like I said, it, it grew to several hundred. Bonnie died of cancer in the mid-1980s, and their, their, their numbers shrank dramatically down to 38 followers. But Marshall Applewhite was still leading the charge, and they felt as though they, they caught their big break in 1997, 25 years ago, almost exactly 25 years ago. There was a comet nearby. And they believed that if they could hop the comet, they could ride to galactic glory. They could be transformed. But here was the thing. The thing that would bring about the transformation for this group of 39 would be that. And so uh, they went to a sporting goods store. They all bought Nike running shoes. They bought matching sweatpants. They bought matching sweatshirts. And over the course of three nights, they, uh, they, they killed themselves. They committed suicide. They were found in the San Diego mansion, uh, I believe, on March 26, 1997. Now, I want us to forget for a moment the last 2,000 years of Christian history. And let's just think for a moment. Let's pretend as though we're living the day after the death of Christ. Okay? Saturday after his death. And we're looking, we're comparing the death of Christ and the death of Marshall Applewhite. Both men claim that they had power, that they had a movement, that death would bring about a transformation to the good life. A death could bring that about. Both of them made that claim. Which movement do you think is more likely to succeed? Marshall Applewhite? Jesus of Nazareth. Forget the last 2,000 years. Marshall Applewhite's movement's looking pretty good. I mean, his death was controlled. The death of Jesus looked out of control. It, it looked, just on the ground, it looked like the situation was totally out of hand. Chaotic. Violent. Marshall Applewhite had 38 followers that were willing to follow him to death. Three times the number of followers that Jesus had. And not only did Jesus not have those followers with them in this time of the they had all scattered. They were hiding. They were running. And yet, you've probably never heard of Marshall Applewhite. 
You've probably never heard of Heaven's Gate. That was the name of their movement. Maybe you remember the Nike tennis shoes. That, that, that's the one thing I remember. It was this weird group that had these Nike running shoes. They all wore matching shoes and sweats. That's what I remember. It's so bizarre. But the movement has fizzled. There's no life to Heaven's Gate. You don't remember it. Meanwhile, the death of Christ has grown into a global movement that is sweeping across the world. It's growing like wildfire in places like Asia, Africa, South America, Central America. It has, it has produced, this movement of Christ has produced some of the world's best art, best music, best philosophy. All the things that we love are a result, so many of the things we love are a result of this movement of Christ. Things like hospitals and healthcare and appreciation for the dignity of the individual. Uh, our idea of human rights, all of it is rooted in, in the foundation of this Jesus movement, of this religion that we call Christianity. So there's Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Marshall Applewhite of California, both claim that their death, a death, could open the way to new life. Christ transformed the world, and it's, it's continuing to be transformed because of his death. Apple White you've never heard of. What's the difference between the two? The difference is the resurrection. Jesus came back. Marshall Applewhite did it, and his movement is as dead as Marshall Applewhite. Christianity is as alive as its founder because he is risen and he's alive. So that's what we're celebrating this morning is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It changes everything. It's what Easter's all about. Now, we remembered his death on Friday. If any of you were here on this Good Friday service where we remembered the death of Christ. And it's, it's tempting to kind of think of the death of Jesus as that, that was his defeat. And his resurrection was his victory. But that's actually not it. His death was his victory. It came in weakness. His power came in weakness and foolishness to the world. But as he was dying on the cross, he was disarming spiritual forces. He was slaying sin. He was absorbing the judgment of God so that we might experience the blessing of God. All of that was happening. He was winning as it looked like he was being destroyed. That was how it worked in God's wisdom. And so the death was the victory. And here's what the resurrection is. It's a validating stamp upon the victory of Christ. Right? That's what the resurrection is. You might think of it like this. His death on the cross was the championship game. His resurrection is the trophy ceremony, where the championship is sort of marked as one, as ours, as the team's uh, championship. Christ made sweeping promises. He died, came back, he was resurrected. And I want us to focus our attention on his resurrection this morning. We're gonna, we've got three things this morning that we're going to consider. One, the resurrection is fact. Paul says that in his verses. The resurrection is fact. Second thing is the resurrection is essential to our faith. And then third, I want us to consider how the resurrection changes us. So the resurrection is fact. The resurrection is essential. And then finally, we'll consider how the resurrection uh, changes us. But first, I want to I just make note of something here. Paul's priority in his preaching and his teaching as well as the priority of the whole Bible, is gospel. 
but the declaration of what Christ has done. I mean, it's central to our ministry as a church. We're engaged in gospel ministry because we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes lives. And Paul says that here. He makes that same point. Look what he says in verses 1 and 2. Now, brothers, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Okay, you received the gospel. So it all started there. You're standing in it. And by which you're actually being saved ongoing, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. You see what Paul is saying here? He's saying, look, Corinthian Christian, the gospel envelops your life. It is what your life began in when you received the gospel and came to faith in Christ. It's what you stand in right now. It's the means by which you're being saved from the power of sin. Gospel ministry, start to finish. The news of the gospel is operative in your life from beginning to end, as Tim Keller likes to say. The gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the AZ. It's, it covers the whole span of the Christian life. And that's what Paul's saying right here. And here's the thing. It's tempting for us to want to, like, conflate all religions. We're familiar enough with many religions. We've got heaven's gate. We've got Buddhism, Islam. We've got all these religions, big and small old and new, aren't they all basically the same? It's very tempting for us to just kind of conflate them and say they're all, they're all basically the same. Christianity stands out, okay, from the past. You think of Buddhism. What, what's, what's the goal of Buddhism? It's, it's, it's through meditation, through spiritual and physical labor, through good deeds, that you reach nirvana. That's the goal. A set of practices, a set of teachings to be followed, will lead to nirvana. The, the Islam, for example. What's central to Islam? The first thing you think about. The five pillars of Islam, right? A set of practices. Okay? Christianity has practices, but it's not central. What's central to Christianity is news. It's a, it's a declaration, not of what we do, but of what has been done for us, the work of Christ. That's how Christianity is different. It's the gospel. It's news. Not about what we do primarily, but about what God has done in Christ. And so what is that gospel? Look at, look at verses 3 and 4. Maybe the most succinct statement of the gospel we get in all the Bible. Right here. Verse 3. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance. This is the priority of my preaching and teaching and ministry. This is it right here. It's what I also received from Christ. And this is it. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says that is my priority message. If I have 10 seconds to speak to another human being, to present the gospel to them, that's what I do. Christ died for your sins, he was buried, he was raised. The, the death for our sins, the atoning death of Christ and the resurrection. That's the, the nuts and bolts. You know, if you're evangelizing in your neighborhood and you're like, I don't know, I don't know what to say. That's, that's as simple as it gets. You just boil it down to its essence. Christ died for your sins. He was raised. And so what Paul gives his emphasis to in this whole chapter of 15, which we've only uh, printed a portion of in your order, is the resurrection. And listen to what he says about the resurrection. This is, this is our first point. The resurrection is fact. It's factual. 
Listen to what he says in verse 5. So Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 5. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Did you hear what Paul's saying there? He's saying, look, and some of them are doubting the resurrection. That's what's sparking all of this. He's saying, look, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He walked the earth for 50 days following his resurrection until Pentecost when he ascended. He, he, he appeared before 500, more than 500 people. And most of them are still alive today. Like, go, go find them. You can find, I know Corinth to Jerusalem, that's a long journey, but isn't it worth it? If there is a man who started a movement and was raised from the dead, isn't it worth your time to investigate the veracity of this claim? We're not crazy, Paul says. We, we witnessed this man, and many people walking planet Earth, more than 500, witnessed the risen Lord. Shouldn't you investigate it? That's what Paul is telling the church of Corinth. Tim, Tim Keller, again, uh, I think gives a helpful illustration. He says, imagine you get a letter in the mail from a, a lawyer, and it has, uh, it looks very official, it looks like legit, more or less, and you open it up, and it says you have this long-lost relative who you've never met, never heard of. They've died, and they're gifting you millions of dollars. Millions and millions of dollars. And you read that letter, and you think, there's no way this thing is. This is a scam. But don't you have to investigate that a little bit? It just seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Millions of dollars just there in your lap. You have to investigate it. So you at least make like a phone call or, or just invent, like check out the law firm and try to kind of work some angles to see if this thing is true or not. Because if you're wrong, if you just throw that letter away and you're wrong, you've missed out big time. So it is with the resurrection. The claim of Christianity is, there's a reason we call it gospel, good news, right? It's incredibly good news. The possibility of a resurrection, the possibility of forgiveness of sins the possibility of everlasting life, the possibility of peace with your neighbor in a body called the church, a loving community empowered by the Spirit of God to love one another, mercy with God, life everlasting, a resurrected world order, every spiritual blessing is yours. Like millions of dollars is a little drop in the, in the bucket compared to the promises of God in Christ. And if he was raised from the dead, I'm sold. Like, you, you bring yourself back from the dead, I think what you say has, has legitimacy for me. Now, there's so many things we could say about, like, kind of reason. There's really good reasons to believe in the resurrection. I, I want to just mention one of them, and that is the fact that we have, remember, uh, unlike Marshall Applewhite, who had all of his lead followers intact at the time of his death, and they like, went to death with him. Jesus had none of them. They were all hiding. They were afraid. They were watching, maybe from a distance, if they were even there at all. They're petrified. The whole movement has come crashing down. And they're fearful, and they don't know what to do, and they're at a loss. So we go from there to these men mustering the courage 
to go against the Jewish authorities, mustering the courage to go against the Roman authorities, mustering the courage to go against the grain of uh, uh, Gentile, Roman, Greek, paganism, and philosophy, to preach Christ, oftentimes with great suffering involved, and they actually died for those, those beliefs. They died for them, and in the process, they spark a movement that sweeps the globe. How do you explain that if he wasn't, didn't come back from the dead? don't see it happening. So, the thing that changed was the reality of the, of, the, of the resurrection. Now that's kind of like, if you just boil it down, that's it. That's Christianity in all its clarity. Jesus, the death did everything he said it would. Everything his apostles said it would. And the resurrection validates it all. It's like a shiny stamp of approval of authentication, like genuine message here. That's what the resurrection does. Genuine message. Trustworthy message. But, I know, that when we're thinking about Christianity, there's all kinds of things that kind of obscure it for us. Maybe it's the doctrinal things that we don't like. Maybe we don't like Christianity's sexual ethic. Or we don't like uh, the exclusivity of Jesus, that only through Jesus can a person be saved. Maybe we don't like that. Or we don't, the violence of the Old Testament bothers us. Listen, if Jesus has authority over death, don't you think he should have authority over your life? Whether it makes sense to you or not, over your sexual life? Don't you think that what he says about how people access the Father should be true? Well, maybe you don't like it. And maybe over time, given his wonderful sacrifice for us, he wants what's best for us. Maybe over time, those difficult things will, will begin to make sense. Right? Broccoli doesn't make a whole lot of sense to my kids. Gummy bears make all the sense in the world. We just have those all the time. It would be perfect. Maybe, maybe in time, the wisdom of the Christian tradition will begin to make sense. But, but don't forget, he was raised. He's risen. Second thing that obscures the faith is the failure of Christians. The failure of Christians, especially the failure of Christian leaders. And we've seen many examples of this in recent time. I know many of you listen to the rise and fall of Mark's Hill podcast and the whole situation there. There's the Bill Heibel's issue, and there's the Christianity Today editor issue, and there's the Robbie Zacharias. We look at all these Christian leaders that have failed and have some major missteps and, and blunders. And you say, no, I'm not, I don't want to be a part of that. It's not, it's not legit, it's not a moral, it's, it's just, it's just, it's not true. And not to mention, my own struggles, my own struggles. I look at myself and I think, is res Paul says, resurrection power, back in Ephesians chapter 1, is that work in us, working to sanctify, to make us right. And yet you look at your struggles and you think, is it really there? Now, I, Scott Sauls, I think, is a good example. He says, imagine that you're uh, at a piano recital for a six-year-old, and they're playing Mozart. And it's, it doesn't sound good. I mean, it, it, sometimes it sounds like music, like once in the whole thing. It's, you're like, oh, that was Mozart. It's just not great. Are you going to walk away from that concert and say, I'm never listening to Mozart again? Mozart, uh, that was horrible. Right? God's people, and this is like baked into the Christian understanding. We're sinners. 
And we're, we're, we're little six-year-olds trying to play Mozart. I mean, we're, we're trying to follow Christ. We're struggling. We're fumbling our way through this life. Don't focus on our play. Focus on the work of Christ. He was raised. Does, does the Driscoll abuse or the Rabbi Zacharias abuse mean that Christ was not raised from the dead? Does that change the fact of Christ's resurrection? It doesn't. Doesn't change it at all. He's risen. And not just that, the resurrection are the first fruits, as we said at the outset. Verses, it's not in your, in your text there, but verse 20 and 23, Paul brings up this language of Jesus being the first fruits, the kind of the window into what's to come for all creation in his resurrection. And the picture's a harvest one, right? The first fruits is the first fruit that pops up on the ground. And, and, and that's what's happening for all of creation. The resurrection seeds have been sown across the globe uh, for millennia, for millennia. And they're there. They're, 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 they're resting in the soil of this old dying world. And one day they will explode in glory across the globe. Lives will explode from the grave in glory just as Christ exploded from the tomb. Listen to what Michael Horton says about the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, right now, is like its king before he was raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father. It can only appear weak and foolish to the world. How strong did Christ look on that Saturday? On Saturday, I'm looking at Marshall Applewhite before I'm looking at Jesus. Right? That's how weak and Foolish, the whole thing was. And that's what the kingdom of God looks like. It appears weak and foolish to the world, even though this kingdom is more extensive. In reality, it's more extensive in its global reach, more intensive in its redemptive power than any earthly empire in history. And during this present age, right now, this glory is hidden under the cross. And one day, it will explode. It will explode across the globe. Christ's kingdom will come in all its undeniable beauty and power before everyone to see. Every knee will bow before God, before Christ and the King. And it will be, that moment will be as, as real. So check that. It will, be, it will be more real than this moment right now. But here's the thing that's even more incredible. If you want to see that, if you want to get a sneak preview of that kingdom, you know where you go? This is what Burton says. You go, to, you go to the church where you find public ministry of the word, sacrament, discipline, the fellowship of the saints, sharing in spiritual and material gifts of the body. This is the place where Christ's kingdom is concentrated. That's why we've said it many times that when a church is planted, like we did a couple years ago, a window to heaven opens. This is the place where we see the future of what's going to come Cross creation. And one of the things this means, I know we have a lot of visitors this morning, we're grateful that you're here. One of the things this means is that it's important for you, um, as if, 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 you're, if you're a Christian and you don't have a home church, it's important for you to land somewhere. We would love for it to be here, but any gospel preaching, Bible believing church, we would love to see you land there so that you can experience the benefits and the encouragement. And even the struggle and suffering, it comes from being a part of a community, a spirit-empowered community like the church. So what, what Paul 
Paul is saying here in these, these verses is that the resurrection is fact. The resurrection validates the effectiveness of the death of Christ, and it also validates the future that we all have in being resurrected ourselves. We're not putting our hope in a comet that we're trying to hop to galactic glory. Our hope is in heaven coming down, joining earth, and all of the creation, all of the universe exploding into resurrection glory. And Christ's church being central to that kingdom, and even sharing in Christ's rule and reign over all the universe. That's the promise. That's the resurrection promise. Now, because the resurrection is the validating stamp on the work of Christ, because it's our validating hope for the future, Paul says, the second point, that it's essential. It's essential. It's not like an option for us. Look at what he says in verses 12 through 19. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul says. If there's no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Right? Every week, hours go into these sermons, and then the hour right now, I'm wasting my time. I'm wasting my time right at this moment being here if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. You are wasting your time. You wasted a good outfit. You're wasting all sorts of things right now. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, that's what Paul is saying. It's all a waste of time. Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ. And he did not raise, it's true, that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. All people suffering in all sorts of ways on planet Earth, we are the most pitiful. If we do not believe, or if the resurrection did not happen, because all of because here's the thing. Remember what Michael Horton said? The kingdom of Christ is like its king before he was raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father. It just appears weak and foolish until, boom, resurrection happens Sunday. And all of a sudden, the glory, the transformation, it's like, it all makes sense. If there's no resurrection, we, we're just weak and foolish. That's it. The resurrection is like the flip that flips everything, that flips the kingdom from weakness and foolishness to power and glory. That's, that's the flip. And if there's no resurrection, there's no flip, and we're just weak and foolish. That's what Paul is saying. That's the, that's the logic of it. I'm trying to think of a way to illustrate this, and the thing that comes to mind is imagining a team, a sports team, an athletic team. They're getting mocked by the other team. They're getting beat. They're getting demolished. Fans are jeering at them. They're just, it's just an embarrassment for this team. But somehow, someone, there's a single play that flips the whole thing. The scales tip. And, and, and the, the team that's not supposed to win, that looks weak, that's the mockery, they win somehow. And that's what Christianity's like. And the, the play that flips, it's the resurrection. 
It's what flips everything. It's how weak and foolish this becomes power and glory. Our faith, here's the way to think about it. Our faith is weak and foolish if there is no resurrection. That's what Paul is saying here. It's essential, but there is a resurrection, and that is a complete game changer. Now, it's obvious that that changes the future, the resurrection. But can it change our lives like right now, in the here and now? And I believe it does. Paul, Paul actually says it does. Here in this last verse, he, I mean, he's, he's making all these incredible points about the resurrection, which we don't have time to get into, but he, it all culminates in this verse 58. Therefore, based on everything I just said about the resurrection, therefore, be steadfast, verse 58, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The first thing that Paul says happens to us when we embrace the resurrection, when we live in light of it, is that we become steadfast and immovable. And you think about Paul, Paul was steadfast. He was immovable. He tells, later he tells the church at Corinth, all of his sufferings, it's incredible. I'm going to read some of this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He talks about all of his labors, the imprisonments that he's undergone. He's experienced too many beatings to count, usually to the point of death. Five times he was flogged, 39 lashes. It was believed that being flogged 40 lashes would kill a person, so they shaved it off one to keep him alive. You, uh, the, the movie The Passion of the Christ, they, they flogged Jesus in that. That happened to Paul five times. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, they tried to kill him. I mean, that was the intent of that was to kill, but somehow he survived by some miracle of God. He was shipwrecked three times. Remember Tom Hanks' castaway? That happened three times to Paul. He experienced great dangers at sea, on land, in the city, in the wilderness, from robbers, rivers. His own people gave him problems, difficulties. The Gentiles gave him problems, false brothers, horrible weather, lack of food and drink, sleepless nights. And on top of all of that, there was the ongoing concern for his churches. But through it all, Paul remained steadfast. He remained immovable. He was focused on his task. He kept his eyes on Jesus. And he was fruitful. And here's the thing. Paul has impacted all, whether you're a Christian or not, if you live in 2022, which we all do, Paul has impacted your life. Paul's one of the most influential people in the, in the history of the West. And we're all impacted here by, the, by Western civilization. Paul is he's impacted you, even if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, you wrote most of your New Testament. So he's impacting you, hopefully. We pray. That's what the resurrection does. It makes us steadfast and immovable. Tim Keller, again, uh, in an interview, uh, said... He, he has cancer, pancreatic cancer. It's, it's, it's a vicious, lethal cancer. cancer and um, he's already kind of defied the odds in how long he's been able to, to, to have it and, and still be somewhat uh, healthy and, and able to work and those sorts of things. But I heard him interviewed uh, not long ago, and he said, you know, even though I, I, he and his wife were weeping the night before the interview, even though we were crying and we mourned, said, everything's going to be okay. If, if the resurrection really happened, everything's going to be okay for Christ's people. 
everything being okay, but that's the promise. That's what the resurrection means. We become steadfast. We become immovable. Does it mean we become stoic and insensitive to suffering? No, actually the opposite. Jesus, before he raises a man back to life, remember what he does? Shortest verse in the Bible, he weeps. Right? We become sensitive to suffering. But we also become hopeful. We become hopeful. And not just that we are made steadfast and immovable, but if the resurrection happens, it means that our labor abounds in the work of the Lord. He says there in verse 58. And that's not just spiritual work, although it certainly means that. Paul's spiritual ministry, evangelism, his mission work, fruitful. Okay? It's very fruitful. And, and that's true for those of us who believe in the, in, the, in the resurrection. But also, all kinds of work. Your parenting, your secular work, your business, your, your classroom, whatever the work is. This is an incredible, I would love to explore this more, but let me just say this for now. On the day that Jesus died, there were Roman soldiers who woke up that morning to go to work. They put on their Roman soldier garb, and they knew that they had work to do. They knew they had crucifixions to make. They even had heard that there was maybe a controversial one on the horizon that day. So they go to work, they take their nails, they take their hammers, and they start driving nails into this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Right? That was their work for that day. And you know what happens when Jesus returns, resurrected? He starts showing people he's got these marks of the lamb slain. And in Revelation, we get a picture of Christ returning as a lamb slain. In other words, the work of those Roman soldiers persists in heaven right now and will persist in the resurrected order. And many theologians have said, look, human labor will somehow Trans, albeit transformed and gloriously transformed, will spill over into the new resurrection. Which means your work has fruit. Your labor, and this, this is what it says at the end, that's one of my favorite songs that we sing. Your labor is not in vain. Your parenting, this sometimes feels impossible and futile, it's not in vain. The resurrection is true. Christ is working through these things. That failed business project plan, I don't your labor's not in vain. I, we don't, I don't know how. I don't know how it's going to turn fruitful. The resurrection promise is that somehow God is going to take all of that and he's going to weave it into this glorious future. This whole resurrection is unbelievable, but it's true. Um, there's a story of G. Campbell Morgan, who was a pastor in the UK, written in the late 18, early 1900s, and very prominent minister. And he was traveling to Italy, and he found himself in a cemetery. And he saw a peculiar sight. There in the cemetery was this oak tree popping out of a, uh, a tomb, uh, like a concrete slab, coffin. And he asked the Italian near him, who was at the cemetery, What's, what happened there? He said, well, that's a crazy story. We don't know what exactly happened. Apparently, like an acorn fell into the coffin as they were burying this man and slid the thing over. Maybe there was a crack in the, in the, in the tombstone. But somehow, the acorn uh, got enough moisture, got enough soil, got enough light, and the crack in the thing. We don't know what happened, but, you know, 50 years later, pop, this, this tree pops up out of this concrete slab. And then this big oak tree. And right at the base of it is 
one half of a concrete, uh, the coffin lid, and the other half of a coffin lid. What are the chances of that happening? I mean, when that little acorn like bounced down and fell into that coffin as they were covering the lid, it's, you think somebody saw that and said, we better get that out there. That could cause some real problems for this time. No, they slid this huge concrete slab over it. But guess what? Over time, given the right ingredients, the life force of the acorn just kept putting pressure and pressure and pressure on that concrete slab and eventually cracked, split it open, and then it's on its way to, to grow. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It is so unlikely. The seeds of the kingdom are sown in weakness and foolishness. Nobody thinks anything of it. If they even see these seeds at all, they don't think anything of it. But one that, but here's the thing. The, the acorn had life force in it. The seeds of the kingdom have resurrection power in it. That's the power that's pulsating through the seeds of the kingdom. And one day, the whole earth, this whole dying earth, will be busted open with resurrection power. And we will be united with all the saints of old, in Christ, everlasting and eternal kingdom. That's, that's what resurrection hope is. And that's our hope. Let's, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your promises, for the good news of your gospel. We pray that you would help stir our hearts and our imaginations so that we live more in light of it. That you would give us a sanctified imagination. That we would see even our failures and struggles as, as, um, as ways in which you're building your kingdom in our life. The resurrection changes everything. And we ask, I pray for those that may be here that don't, uh, that are not Christians, I pray that your spirit would help them see, uh, understand, awake, be awakened maybe to the, to the good news of this truth. And we thank you that, that they're here this morning. And we pray that you would help us to continue to see Jesus as we come to your table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.